Chapter 8 of Dog Watches at Sea This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dog Watches at Sea by Stanton H. King Chapter 8 Ordinary Seamen after the gale we had fair winds and fine weather the rest of the voyage. The tar-barrel was opened and the work of blackening the bleached and rotten rigging was begun. There was no material for repairs, not even enough seizing stuff to straighten the old rat-lines. This was my first experience of tarring down. I rather enjoyed it. The very fact of having my hands black made me feel I was a sailor. The foot-ropes on the forward yards and the head-stays were my portion. As soon as I came on deck, if it was not my wheel, I would sling the tar-pot around my neck, and up I'd go and straddle the yards. Beginning at the end of each yard, I would hold on to the jack-stay, and with my foot get the foot-ropes on the yards and give them a rub of tar. Seated on the yards, I could look the ship over from the man at the wheel to the shark's tail on the end of the flying jib boom. At times the old mate's voice calling me to wake from my dreams would rouse me from my reverie and bring my mind back to my work. The port watch had finished forward, and the starboard watch had completed the work on the main it was decided that both watches should blacken the mizzen. I was at the wheel from twelve to two one afternoon, enjoying a hearty laugh at the captain's expense, when he landed a cuff on the side of my head, which changed my joy into grief. When in Aquin, Frank had exchanged a pair of trousers for a large black ring-tail monkey. He was really more tail than monkey. At first the old man objected to having him on board, but when made to understand that Jacko should be fed from our pound and pint, and would therefore cost him nothing, he allowed the monkey to remain. Jacko and the captain were sworn enemies, and many a time the old man had applied a rope's end while chasing him forward. He seldom went abaft the mainmast. It was his delight to be around the forecastle and galley catching the myriads of cockroaches that swarmed there. I have noticed that most Scandinavian and Dutch seamen who have but lately left their homes have two feather beds. They sleep on one and use the other as a covering. Captain Olson had two feather beds, and on this day had taken advantage of the fine weather to give them an airing. Occasionally a few drops of tar would fall from the hands of the men in the mizzen rigging, so he spread his beds on the fife rail around the mainmast, out of reach of any falling drops of tar. I could not see the beds, but noticed a host of feathers ascending and lodging on the freshly tarred shrouds and ratlines 
of the main lower rigging. I let go the wheel and took a few steps forward on the top of the cabin and saw Jacko pulling the feathers from the old man's bed. He had discovered a hole in the tick, which he had enlarged till he could get his paw inside. The mate was forward, giving the anchors a coat of coal tar, Moses was in the mizzen rigging, enjoying the fun, and I took an occasional run from the wheel to watch Jacko in his glory. The old man came up while I was away, and when he saw what caused so much laughter, gave me the blow on the side of my head. Walking forward to the forecastle where Jacko had found a refuge, he coaxingly called, Hey, Jacko, boy, hey, Jacko, till he was near enough to catch him. Then with a pounce, he grabbed poor Jacko by the back of the neck, got him under the forecastle head, dipped him in the tar barrel, and started aft with him. It was not so easy a task as the captain thought. Squealing, squirming, and twisting himself about, Jacko managed to get a turn with his tail around the captain's neck, besmearing his face and clothes with tar. To release himself, he inflicted several blows on the monkey's head. Then, opening the bed tick, he jammed Jacko in amongst the remaining feathers, and swinging the bed over his head, gave it a lively shake. Oh, what fun! I hadn't enjoyed anything like it for a long time. When Jacko was finally shaken out, he resembled a Thanksgiving turkey. At four bells the wheel was relieved, and I went forward for my tar-pot. There I saw Mike with a slush-pot, giving Jacko a bath of grease to remove the tar and feathers. By dinner-time the monkey was himself again, ready, if need be, to empty another bed. A few more days, and old England was in sight. I had heard so much about her. Now I could see the soil which my Barbadian countrymen considered sacred, next to heaven. The pilot boarded us as we entered the channel, and the third night after making the land, we were crossing the North Sea, leaving the foreland lights astern. We entered the river Scheld, and put the channel pilot ashore at Flushing. Taking the river pilot on board, we proceeded to Antwerp. With a fair wind, we moved briskly along, and dropped anchor at the quarantine station some twenty miles from the city. No sooner had the doctor left us than fully a dozen men, from the small boats waiting alongside, boarded our craft and formed our acquaintance. I soon learned that there were runners from the sailors' boarding houses, and each man brought a good supply of rum, which was readily consumed. I accepted a drink from a runner who represented a house called the Prince of Wales, which I promised to patronize. I remember no more till I awoke from my stupor in the sailor's boarding-house. I felt somewhat uneasy, 
but seeing Mr. Moore and the cook near me, regained my usual fearlessness. I then learned that the runners had furled the sails and docked the ship, so that they might be sure of their prey. Late in the evening we obtained a few francs from Mr. Murphy, the boarding-master, and went in search of our other shipmates. Of all seaports, there is none more vile and demoralizing than the sailor's district, the rag of Antwerp. The Prince of Wales was a liquor saloon and boarding-house, situated between two dance-halls, where seamen caroused all the night. Mr. Murphy was proprietor of these as well as of the boarding-house. A continual stream of humanity of the most degraded kind flowed between these places. It was the resort of the greater number of the seamen entering the port. I stop here. I want to cast from my mind the memory of the time spent in these places while waiting an official discharge from the ship. On the third morning, Mr. Murphy accompanied us to the British Consul's office. The place was crowded with boarding masters, runners, tailors, and shoemakers, every one of whom had a bill awaiting settlement. As soon as each man was paid, these land sharks demanded payment of their bills. When a bill was repudiated, the reply was that the coat or shoes were bought and the money loaned while we were drunk. Where are these things? Oh, you lost them or sold them for rum. Mike was the first to question the bills. A blow from his boarding-house bully and the advance of others to render this one aid revealed to us that our best policy was to submit to this wholesale robbery. When we left the consul's office, the men had very little money. I was in debt to the boarding-master. The three pounds two shillings due me from the ruby was not sufficient to cancel my bills of forty-eight hours. My shipmates soon forgot their troubles for that night and threw away their remaining francs in the liquor saloon and dance-halls. I was then in my sixteenth year. My greatest desire was that the seamen should think me a full-fledged sailor. With this thought in my mind, I joined in the reckless carousal. A kind-hearted lady once asked me, Why do sailors frequent such places? Why? Because the humdrum monotony, the misery, and wretched surroundings on shipboard create a desire for some exciting change. The restraint of ship discipline is removed. The man does not appreciate liberty. Unsuspicious and unfamiliar with the ways of a foreign shore, he puts his trust in others, believing them to be friends. He is robbed, both of soul and body. Why doesn't he associate with the right kind of people? Because the right kind of people will not associate with him. He is a stranger to everybody, known only as a common sailor 
which means banishment from respectability. This kind-hearted woman of whom I spoke opened her doors in welcome to a few respectable mariners, and the neighbors threatened to move away. Why doesn't he attend sailors' missions and make his headquarters there? Well, in a way sailors do. Missions are not what they were twenty years ago. Then they were tame and unattractive, places where seamen thought men were made goody-goody. Seamen steered clear of them then. Today the missions have excellent concerts, full of healthy fun and frolic, to influence the sailor and to satisfy his social nature. Pool and billiard tables, games, and a smoking room. All these things are as good there as in a barroom. He meets women of good character who occasionally admit him to the sweet, helpful atmosphere of their homes. Next to an evening in a Christian home in the refining influence of the women workers in a seaman's mission. I speak from experience. I believe I should still be at sea today but for the help given me when a sailor in being allowed to visit a Christian home. I rejoice that many good people are now inviting the seamen who desire to live and do better to enjoy an hour of real home life with them. I remained in the boarding house for two weeks, the target of curses, cuffs, and kicks, not only from the boarding master, but from the drunken seamen. One afternoon, some homeward bounders came in. They had arrived that day from San Francisco on the ship Three Brothers. Every attention was paid them. I was called on to lend a hand in getting their bags upstairs. While trying to carry a bag much larger than myself up the flight, I stumbled, the bag rolled to the bottom step, and knocked a half-drunk homeward bounder over. There was a scramble to get at me, but I was out of the door and away down the street, leaving my clothes behind me. Once free, I resolved never to lodge in a sailor's boarding house again, and I have kept my resolution. Passing the cathedral, I noticed a company of ladies and gentlemen entering. They were conversing in English. I went behind the group and with them to the top of the high steeple. It was a magnificent view. As far as my sight could reach, I could see the distant fields and the winding river covered with craft of every description. The large granite docks seemed nearby, as though I could reach out and touch the forests of vessels' masts. I took advantage of the chance given me to escape to the street while the guide continued his explanations to the tourists. I could speak no Flemish, so wandering from street to street, I made a long journey before reaching the docks. Then I gazed in astonishment at what seemed a floating world, a full-rigged ship, her hull high out of the water, and her mast towering in the air. I examined her rig closely. Five top-gallant yards, double on the fore and main, and single on the mizzen. 
and a main skysail yard which was as large as the main topgallant yard of the ruby. She seemed a wonder to me. I drew close to the stern and read the name Hagerstown, Richmond. I did not know where Richmond was, but could tell by her fine lines and rig that she was a Yank. I had heard stories of the brutal treatment of sailors on a Yankee deep-water man, and was somewhat timid, but necessity compelled me to mount the gangway. As soon as I spoke to an elderly gentleman who was walking the half-deck, my fear and timidity were dispelled. I meekly inquired if the captain was on board. He kindly replied, I'm the captain. What can I do for you? He listened attentively to my story, then running his fingers through his hair, said, My boy, stay right here. We sail for Philadelphia in the morning. I'll put you on the articles as an ordinary seaman at ten dollars a month. The mate, a long, wiry gantline, came along just then, and Captain Boyd turned me over to him, saying, Here's an ordinary seaman for you. The Hagerstown had been in port several weeks. She had brought a cargo of grain from San Francisco and was now loaded with empty kerosene oil barrels. The riggers had bent the sails, and everything was ready for our departure. The jib-boom was in on the forecastle head, and all the headgear seemed an inextricable mass. There was a large forward house on deck. About half of it was used for two forecastles, one for each watch. The other half was divided into rooms for the galley, carpenter shop, donkey engine room, boatswain's locker, and boatswain's room. The cabin was large and spacious. A partition divided it in two, the after part elegantly furnished for the captain's use, and the forward, the dining room. The mate's room was at the port, and the second mate's at the starboard entrance to the cabin. As no work had been given me, I passed the time looking the ship over. What a size! I longed for the hours to go by that I might be at sea and witness this monster fill her sails and speed along. I felt proud of being an ordinary seaman on so fine a ship. No notice was taken of me till the mate spied my antics at the wheel. I was moving it back and forth, imagining we were at sea. Put that wheel back amidships, and get forward and sweep the forecastles out, was his command. Forward I went, and swept out the two dens, old worn shoes, tin pots and pans, and some well-used donkey's breakfasts left by the last crew. I selected the best bed from the lot, and then tumbled the accumulated rubbish on the deck. It was supper-time, and I ate the leavings of the cabin, dainties of several kinds, the most enjoyable meal for months. That evening the mate, Mr. Montauk, told me that a young friend was joining the ship as ordinary seaman,
he was to be in his watch and i in the second mate's watch knowing this i put the second-hand donkey's breakfast in the best top bunk of the starboard forecastle, and there passed the night next morning a shake and a rough coarse voice calling come get out do you think you're in a hotel made me jump from my bunk it was mr kane the second mate a blue-nosed bucko greaser he the boatswain and the carpenter had brought their things on board the previous day but had returned on shore as their duties did not begin till a sailing day they had come on board in the night to be ready to receive the crew on their arrival in the morning breakfast was just over when the crew landed on deck eighteen men a motley crowd of all nationalities some stupidly drunk others drunk enough to be noisy they came swearing and cursing the boarding-masters tumbled their dunnage on board and lugged it forward to the forecastle i saw mr murphy my boarding-master on the wharf some of the crew were from his house so i hid myself till we were away from the dock when the last man was forward mr addersley a red-headed yank from the state of maine better known as boatswain began to exercise his lungs the first yell i thought a thunderclap such a voice enough to raise the crown of my head it took most of his time to get the men from the forecastle it was the fourth of july and they were finishing the rum they had brought on board one man seemed to lot it over all the rest he had cleaned out the dives on shore and had a fighting record he claimed to be an american from san francisco while they were on deck getting the hawser up from the forepeak the mate and second mate went through their dunnage and cleaned out the rum i heard the mate say to the boatswain take it easy boatswain just humor them we'll soon be clear of the dock gates i had every opportunity to imbibe with the men but as the drink habit had not yet fastened its grip upon me i refused the liquor i went aft to relieve the man at the wheel who was glad of the chance to go forward there was another large american ship the patrician following close behind us she was bound to australia on her forecastle head hustled around with the rest of her crew was my old friend the mate of the ruby i shouted mr moore he saw me and in a drunken brawling voice replied so long king rattle his bones all over the stones i heard no more for he was pushed roughly off the forecastle head all the way through the docks these half-crazed creatures had things their own way the large towboat had hardly tautened our hawser when the music began it was the time for the after end to assert its authority every man with the exception of the captain 
a quiet, fatherly gentleman, who, on seeing I was a proficient helmsman, had gone below to transact some business with a man from shore, was keeping step to the waltz. The jib-boom had to be rigged out, the gears set up, and the headsails bent. The first man the boatswain tackled was Frisco, the cock of the walk. It was wonderful how four men, the two mates, boatswain and carpenter, sober and armed with authority and belaying pins, could sail in amongst a drunken crowd, and in a few minutes, by spilling a few drops of blood, subdue the lot and make them hop light and come a-running. I was glad I was a boy, as very little attention was paid to me. It took the greater part of the forenoon to get the boom out and everything forward straightened out, but it was accomplished with cuffs and kicks, mingled with such oaths as would make one tremble. By night the men were a sore-looking lot. The day's work of getting the jib-boom out, lashing of spars and water-casks, cleaning up decks, and getting secured for sea with the hot Fourth of July sun had banished all their pugilistic feelings. I will say, in justice to the deep-water American ships of other days, that although I have seen men brutally abused for no reason by some of the cruel bucko mates, whose only delight is to misuse their authority, it is necessary, at such times as I have been describing, to assert authority by means of violence. The seamen are partially to blame. They come on board under the influence of drink, disobedient and obstreperous, and therefore compel the officers to force them into submission. Generally, the man who is a competent sailor, who does his work quickly and implicitly obeys the officer's commands, keeps clear of abuse. I soon learned this lesson, and thereby saved myself many a thrashing. That evening, under a magnificent spread of snow-white canvas, the Hagerstown was running before a strong east wind bound out the English Channel. At eight o'clock all hands were mustered aft, and the men selected for the watches. The mate stood on the port side and called a man to him, while the second mate did the same on the starboard. The second mate's watch, which according to custom is the captain's, had the eight hours on deck. The wheel being relieved and the lookout stationed, the port watch was told to go below. Now that the men were sober, they proved excellent seamen, all except one Joskin, and he was a Belgian farmer who had paid a boarding master a small sum for the chance to do a little work and earn his passage to America. He could speak no English, but the poor fellow did his best to make himself of use. As the mate had the first choice in picking the watches, the unfortunate Joskin was left for the starboard watch. About ten o'clock it began to rain and the wind increased. 
the royals and mizzen topgallant sail were clewed up away we went to stow them i started for the mizzen royal which was as much as i could handle i had a hard struggle to get it smothered but i did it on my way down i expected to find the topgallant sail furled but no not a man had been on the yard standing in the cross trees i heard a groan on the side of the doublings on looking i saw the belgians seated on the weather side of the cross trees in the throes of seasickness mr kane was bawling and shouting hurry up there with that top gallant sail i was a stout strapping fellow but not strong enough to smother that sail i could not make the second mate understand as the howling wind carried my voice forward so down i went and told him the belgian farmer was dying in the cross trees he called a man and sent us up to furl the sail the wind held its own it was a moderate gale a small vessel would have reefed her topsails but we kept on with no further shortening of sail the second mate bawled at joskin to come down but he remained there till eight bells when mr montauk sent up a couple of men to help him before we reached philadelphia the belgian had faithfully earned his passage he was kept on the move from early to late scraping and pounding iron rust cleaning and scrubbing paintwork and holy stoning decks End of chapter eight